0: With me in my foul life.
1: What is going on, podcast world? Got a good, 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 good conversation for you today. We're going to be talking about seeing the light, vision, what it means to not miss a beat when we're out in nature, God's country. Ducks, geese, turkeys, rabbits, elk, deer, moose, sheep, fishing sunrises, sunsets, wet dogs, everything that goes into the life of the outdoorsman, the provider, the hunter, the conservationist, the gatherer, the fisher, I love all of it and I want to see it. I don't want to miss any of it. It, This last couple weeks of my life has made me really reflect on how blessed we are to be able to see as much as we are. Today's episode of the Fowl Life Podcast is brought to you by Meet Your Maker, meet M-E-A-T, Become a butcher, become a processor, take pride, have passion in your wild game, that bounty. It's not always about that trigger pull. Don't get me wrong. I'm unapologetic. I like to kill animals, but I like to do it with dignity, ethics, morals, and respect for the resource and compassion for the animals that we pursue. And I like to serve that wild game bounty to friends and family. So when you want to become a butcher, a processor, right in your garage, your backyard, your man cave, your women woman cave, if you got a shop, if you want to see it come to light, full circle, sustainability, living off the land, Meet Your Maker has the products for you from grinders to mixers everything to seal vacuum seal all of your meat to keep it for years if you need to but for months for sure in your freezer so you can enjoy it over the holidays we got coming up it's the best time of year and meat is there to provide us with the equipment to give us that pride and passion in all of our wild game processing and butchering so check them out meetyourmaker.com made with meat on instagram i'm proud to be associated with them i know that you guys are going to love their equipment in today's episode we're going to talk to dr Dr. Matt Mills from the Visionary Eye Surgery Center in Nevada, and eye specialists, eye care professionals, eye care professionals in Reno, Nevada. I uh, I get kind of uh, fired up when I think about what this guy's done for me. I met this guy through the Boys and Girls Club. He had won a hunt he bid on a hunt to come to colorado to the front range chase canada geese with us and steelwater outfitters and then it turned into a friendship and then an introduction to dr eric dean who's my dentist now and we're, we're going to talk today about what's gone on in the last couple weeks of my life but i just wanted to start off real quick about you've been on the podcast before give me a rundown of why at an early age in your life, you said, well, first of all, welcome, Dr. Matt Mills. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Chad.
0: I'm happy to be back on your podcast and happy that we've been able to help you out a little bit over the last month or so. And uh, just happy to catch up and just more than thrilled to see the development of your own endeavors and all the entrepreneurial things that you have going on. And Uh, Boy, keeping track of you (laughs) is is a full-time job in and of itself, but uh, congratulations on your success and uh, really happy that I've been able to have a a small role in in helping improve your life and your outlook
1: on things. Outlook, no pun intended, but here's the deal. Why vision why was this important to you at a young age did you know it early you know you're seven years old and what do you want to do when you grow up johnny was it one of those type of things or how did it how did it manifest into what it's become
0: well you know chad this whole thing of uh, how the a a person um, develops into the career that they find themselves in some people know very early on and Did I know when I was seven years old that I wanted to be a doctor or a surgeon or specifically an eye surgeon? No, I did. And I thought I was going to play running back in the NFL. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, as things progressed and uh, my academic life, I found that sciences came very natural to me. And don't get me wrong, I worked hard, but I found that I had an aptitude for calculus and physics and to some degree chemistry and biology. So- As I headed off to college, I was initially planning to go into engineering. I went to, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and um, decided to go to Georgia Tech to pursue an engineering degree. And then while I was there, I had sort of had the prospect of applying to medical school in the back of my mind all along. But when you're 17 years old and you're committing to another 13, 14 years of school, that's a big commitment. And so during my uh, freshman year at Georgia Tech, and I... Did extremely well in, in some of these high-level science classes like calculus and physics and convinced myself that I really could do the academic uh, rigors that would be required for medical school. So then I uh, kind of refocused on medical school and getting into medical school. And um, So one, once I got into medical school, I had a number of different specialties that I was interested in, including orthopedics and ER medicine, trauma, uh, perhaps ENT, but then as I went through medical school, and that's when you f- really first get uh, an insider's glimpse. I had actually worked in an ophthalmology practice just to get experience as well as in ERs and, and other places that you would work uh, when you're in college, just trying to get some experience. But as I did my rotation in ophthalmology, I saw the incredible impact that this surgery called cataract surgery Uh, can have on a person's life well-being overall existence and the field just immediately resonated with me that here's an opportunity that i can use the gifts that god's given me to impact people's life and uh, as as you saw as this technology advances the surgery becomes less and less invasive the recovery is quicker the complication rate is very very low the technology that we now have at our disposal didn't even exist when I entered uh, medical school in 1988. Um, so, yeah, I, I saw the technological advancement on the horizon, and we're we're all living in this society that continues to advance technologically in an exponential fashion, and that certainly applies
1: to ophthalmology. So, there's just so many things to love about this field. So you don't start off as an optometrist first you go right into surgery which the, the difference between an optometrist and an ophthalmologist is just that right you're going to well be a actually as so little-
0: it's you know it goes back to um you know which uh, career track you you take optometrists is that's a that's a different um, direction of training and that is optometry school which is a school that is after college um that but is separate from medical school so An ophthalmologist actually, you know, is an MD or a DO, um, and, you know, at, at that point, you can go into any medical specialty there is, whether it's, you know, cardiology or pediatrics or neurosurgeon. So you were an
1: MD. You went to medical school and became an MD. Exactly. Which which an eye surgeon. Okay. There's some confusion here in some people's minds, I think. Right. And I don't want there to be is that you, the, the word MD means medical doctor. This is an MD. This is a degree in medicine right. for the the eye. Right. And it's just like, you could be a heart surgeon. You could be a brain surgeon. You could be an, a, a pediatric surgeon. Exactly. Uh, you could be an orthopedic surgeon, yep. like you touched on. But this is something to me that uh, the first word that comes to mind, I'm not saying that uh, all of them aren't so important, but delicacy, delicate, being delicate is so important to me in this field, it seems like to where you just got to have the touch. You really
0: do. The uh, manual dexterity that's required for this type of microsurgery is very specialized. And, um, you know, there are Uh, occasionally folks that will be selected to go into an ophthalmology residency and then just find out that maybe they don't have that particular skill set and then they either become like a medical ophthalmologist that can diagnose things and perform lasers um, or maybe they go into a different field entirely but yeah there is a a lot of um, because of the microsurgical nature it is a very delicate procedure and it's you know, you, you're going to have uh, some video footage of the surgery that we perform for you, and um, you will see in, in as you review that, that the structures we're working on are, you know, microns thick, and um, that's, you know, one one thousandth of a millimeter, and so the, the posterior capsule, for example, is a structure that we interface with, and we treat with great care, and that is approximately 10 or 15 microns thick which is just a little bit thicker than a a human red blood cell
1: okay you've already let the cat out of the bag in a way of how this has affected and impacted my life is a better word um i talked about in the beginning of the show today the conversation the podcast about seeing is so important in life and when you hear of blindness and loss of vision and vision loss if you will um it makes you wonder you know how difficult and i'm not saying that it kills the spirit but how difficult life would be without vision and i'm nowhere near blind but i started to see a really bad um, effect in my left eye especially which and i want to relate this to hunting today dr mills i know that you enjoy hunting and fishing i know you're an outdoorsman um, but i do i'm shooting a lot and my i'm a left-handed shooter so i was being an athlete my whole life and a baseball player i was right eye dominant which was good for my left-handed swing but as i got more and more into this hunting career i really started to see the effect of shooting both eyes open but my the, the eye down the rib of the shotgun i was being affected bad and i started to see it decrease more and more over the last five years four years of my life so when you start thinking about how it relates to what I do, it was more of a necessity. I wanted to be the best that I can be. If you're going to be the best in your field, and I'm not saying I am, but I wanted to be the best up to my potential, the best version of I, of me that I could be, vision was going to be a key role. Now, look, there's glasses, there's contacts, there's LASIK, there's what I did or, or that's termed or coined cataracts, but there's other words that I want to get into that we've talked about. But glasses weren't working for me. I had all of the, all of the prescription um, sunglasses that you could have. Oakley would build them for me. And I was like, these work. They're good. But there was still something missing in my life of going from taking those off and going back to what I, where I didn't want to be. And then I'd put them back on and I could see pretty good, but I wasn't going to wear my sunglasses all the time. Then my reading glasses I would have on, but still it wasn't good enough for me. I've never been a contact guy. So I went to you and I tried to qualify and I want you to take it from here. There's a very popular surgery that you do called LASIK. And then there's these other surgeries we will get into in in a few minutes. But why couldn't somebody like me qualify for this popular? You see it all over billboards all over America now. LASIK surgery, $3,000 an eye, whatever it says. Why couldn't I qualify for that? And if I did, what would that have entailed?
0: Yeah, those are, are great questions that you raise, and I'm happy to go through and break it down for you. So, you know, as you mentioned, you came to me and said, gee whiz, I'm just not seeing as well as I'm accustomed to or as I need to. I'm in these situations in in, in the field and dusk and dawn. I'm trying to shoot birds or shoot clay pigeons, and um, and it's just not working as well as it once did. And And, and, and you did have an interesting case because... In addition to um, your, your eyes being a little bit farsighted, which we call hyperopia, you had already begun at a young age, and probably because you spend so much time outdoors, you'd already begin to develop cataracts. And cataract is what happens when the lens inside your eye becomes opaque and opacified as opposed to clear when we're born. And so while we could certainly have done LASIK to get rid of the farsightedness, uh, you would still be viewing the world through these opaque lenses uh, called cataracts. So we could have gotten rid of that farsightedness, which you had really done an amazing job of sort of compensating for throughout your life um, prior to that point. But as we get a little bit older, the lens not only becomes opaque, it also becomes more rigid and less flexible. So when that lens, that crystalline lens inside your eye is now opaque and inflexible, you can no longer just power through with focus and accommodation to to see either distance or near. So yeah, when you first came to me, we went down the road of, well, can LASIK accomplish what it is you wanted to accomplish. And I pretty quickly realized that uh, LASIK would only get us so far, and that would be sort of a temporary measure and a temporary fix uh, for your situation. And I determined pretty early on that because of the opacities in your lens and because of what we call dysfunctional lens syndrome, that a lens-based surgery would be better for you. And so what we then went through was all the different permutations and options that we have for uh, lens-based surgery. And so those options include just putting in a standard monofocal lens, which would give you good distance vision, but no intermediate or near. Um, And then we got off into the different types of multifocals, which are lenses designed to give patients a, a range of vision, including intermediate, and near. Uh, the lens that you got is, uh, and we did a lot of, um, we had a lot of conversations and put a lot of thought into what would work best for you. So the lens that you got is a type of lens called extended depth of focus. And the, the brand name of the lens you have is a vividity lens um, made by Alcon. And um, the, the reason I thought this one would be great for you is because it's designed through the extended depth of focus to give you both your high quality distance as well as intermediate and some near and there are lenses that will give you a little bit more of a range uh, in terms of the near vision um, but they carry with it the risk of some adverse visual phenomenon at in in different lighting settings so you can possibly see halos and things like that so the vividity is sort of specifically designed to reduce or eliminate any sort of halos, glare, and that sort of thing. So I just knew w- what I know about you and your profession and your career and, and, and what you were looking for that this would be the right lens for you.
1: So the LASIK would have taken care of my farsightedness. In layman's terms, real quick, tell the audience the, the medical school dictionary. <laughs> you sure you um, want that? No, just, just the just definition <laughs> of in the comparison of farsightedness and nearsightedness. Okay. So nearsightedness
0: is very, very common. And what that means is technically the eye is too long and the uh, focal point of the the cornea and the lens combined focuses the light in front of the retina. But what that translates into for people to understand is that things that are very close to you are in focus, but things that are far away are blurry. So somebody like yourself was farsighted and hyperopic. And what that means is that your eye is too short and that the focal point of the combined refractive power of your lens and cornea is actually behind the retina. And so you, throughout your whole life, you were accommodating. You were flexing your ciliary muscle to allow your lens to flex and increase the power of the lens to then bring that focal point from behind your retina to your retina. So it's, 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 it's analogous to maybe carrying a 5 or 10-pound weight around your entire life. And so you were having to focus that. And then eventually it gets to a point where the effort that's required for that accommodation is more than can be sustained over long periods of time. And then you start to need glasses. And so that's what happened to you.
1: And that was near-sideness. Well, that, that was, that, that was, was far, that was
0: farsightedness. And
1: that, so I'm overcompensating my entire life. Yep. Um, when you start talking about the word overcompensating through farsightedness, does this start to have an effect on the body in different ways? What are some of the, what are some of the things that I was experiencing in life? Headache, wow. headaches, yeah. um, strain, tiredness or laziness? How, what are some of the things that you can start to developing by overcompensating too much? primarily
0: uh, a person who, who's experiencing that can uh, um, experience headaches um, and eye strain and eye fatigue. It's like if you were to work at a computer for an extended period of time, and then all of a sudden you find yourself now the computer is blurry and no matter what you do, you can't bring it into focus. A lot of times people will report sort of a frontal headache or a bitemporal headache. Um, you know, I mean, it's uh those are the main things. Some people can actually develop some double vision uh, from it because the muscles that cause you to accommodate also cause your eyes to converge. Um, that's a system that is built in, uh, in into our design in that in a, in a normal patient who doesn't have to accommodate, your eyes are relaxed and your eyes are parallel to see At a distance and then when you need to accommodate it's because something is near and your eyes naturally need to converge so if you're accommodating at distance you're flexing this muscle to focus but your eyes also want to converge because typically you would be looking at near but now you're trying to do that and look at distance so double vision headaches eye strain eye fatigue and uh you know difficulty with anything
1: intermediate or near but I could see a deer from 200 <clears throat> yards away, no problem. And then as <clears throat> as I would start to talk to you into that intermediate range <clears throat> or that near range, I was having problems. And that's where the glasses came in. I want to get to this question, so keep this in mind. Why would you ever not do what we're talking about today? Why would somebody settle for glasses? Okay, I know there's all kinds of – from financing to economics to everything that goes into life. But I want to talk about – man, I wish I would have done this a long time ago, okay? Like, there's that thought in my head. I wish I would have done this a long time. But here's, one, here's some of the common themes that I've heard over the last few months of being around you and your crew, both in your, in your practice and at the surgery center. Man, you're young for this surgery. Man, uh, are you sure that you're supposed to be getting this surgery? Like, and then the other theme was, no, everybody in their life is going to develop what you call cataracts. Is are these? Why am I young for this surgery? Am I young for this surgery? Where were the where your nurse is just saying this, and then mm-hmm. will most likely all of us in our lifetime develop what we call cataracts to where this surgery is going to be a. Does it become a necessity? Chad, these are great points.
0: um First of all. It's universal. 100% of patients who live long enough will develop cataracts. Um, Cataracts are inevitable um, in in the design of the eye because the, you know, this is going to be sort of off in the scientific weeds a little bit, but your lens is comprised of epithelial cells and they're enclosed in a capsule. Epithelial cells are analogous to the cells of our skin. Um, and they have one job in life, and that's to replicate and reproduce. So we have a closed environment with cells that are programmed to replicate and reproduce. So when you're young, those cells have ample room to organize themselves into a clear arrangement. As they continue to replicate throughout your life, that space becomes overcrowded and impossible to manage. And that's where the opacification and the cloudiness of the lens comes from. So you have correctly identified that 100% of people eventually will develop cataracts. Um, You know, just due to a lack of access to care and a lack of adequate number of doctors, cataracts are the leading cause of blindness worldwide. But fortunately, you know, unlike diabetes and macular degeneration and things like that, it's a reversible form of blindness. So... Here in the U.S., uh, we've seen this amazing trend just during my career, actually, in that people are presenting for cataract surgery much earlier in their life. And, And some of that may be that, you know, cataracts in certain individuals, whether it's related medical problems like diabetes Uh, People that are are nearsighted tend to develop cataracts prematurely. People that are on certain medications, if a person has to take steroids for, say, asthma or or arthritis or some other condition, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, So there's a number of medical and environmental factors that cause people to develop cataracts at an early age. But also, and this is really one of the, the amazing things about this field, is our success rate has improved exponentially our complication rate has decreased exponentially and so the calculation that says what are the risks of this surgery versus what are the benefits of this surgery has changed dramatically over the last 20 years i would say so you know you brought up a question and that is well why would somebody wait and and not do this um you know there with any surgery there are risks And, um, so we can't, you know, minimize or, or or negate the fact that it's still a surgical procedure, but there are some great benefits. So, um, it is something that we're seeing a phenomenon of people coming to this surgery at a younger and younger age. And that's just, you know, a function of one, um, the technology that we use has gotten better. There was a time, so let's fast forward backwards, if that's a word, um, to say 20 years ago or, or uh, ballpark that, where we didn't have the ability to put lenses for distance and near. We didn't have quite the level of accuracy in the machines that measure the eye and determine the power of lens to put in the eye. And so there was a time when the expectation was we'll take out your cataract, we'll put in a lens and you'll wear glasses full time and you'll be happy because the cataract was so bad and now you can see. And our standards that the industry has set for itself have been changing completely. So if we look at what we expect out of ourselves and our ability to hit the nail on the head, so to speak, with our lens power. And then we take all the different types of lenses. We have lenses for astigmatism. We have lenses for for distance and, and distance and near. We have um, extended depth of focus lenses. We have multifocals, which are a little bit different. And on and on down the line. So our ability to deliver good uncorrected vision and now good un- uncorrected vision at multiple distances has really revolutionized this field. And we're going to continue to see more and more lens-based surgeries. Uh, The other thing is that there are patients, and we have some in the pipeline right now, who want refractive surgery. They come in and get screened for LASIK, and for whatever reason, they may not be a candidate for LASIK, but they have some significant refractive error. Well, we can perform something very similar to a cataract surgery, uh, but on someone who doesn't have a cataract. And the term for that is called refractive lens exchange. In in some areas it's referred to as clear lens extraction. Um, so lens-based surgeries are um, advantageous in that they're permanent, unlike if you had LASIK, you will then also eventually have cataract surgery. Um, and and they're they're definitive in that if we get a good result there's no expectation that it will degrade or erode over time um, as does happen with the natural lens
1: you said refractive lens exchange was mine a mixture of cataracts and that or you because actually, i heard that i heard that
0: said in our meetings too you and i have been contemplating what would be the right surgery and then when we first started looking at your possible surgery, the lens that I ultimately used for you actually wasn't available, so we had a little bit of a delay waiting for this lens to be made in a, in a power that would accommodate your eye. But no, yours was cataract surgery. By the time we got to doing your surgery, we had some visual acuity metrics, both what we call your uncorrected vision, your corrected vision, and then your glare disability, which uh, documented the actual need for cataract surgery.
1: <laughs> there are surgeries in life that are one and done. You get your tonsils out, they're not growing back. Um, you get your wisdom teeth out, they're not growing back. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but they they might grow back. I don't think they do. Um, you Orthopedic. I blew out my shoulder. I got my rotator cuff. There's a chance I blow it out again, and I got to get that surgery. Tommy John on baseball pitchers. Mm-hmm. They've had double and triple surgeries. Knee surgeries. You hear of multiple ACL and MCL surgeries. I'm 46 years old. I get this eye surgery done in my 40s of cataracts, which a lot of people, you say, you know, the the younger generation are starting to get, you know, more geared towards the surgery. But in the history of the surgery, it seems to me like it was in your 60s, 70s, maybe even your 80s. Is along my line of questioning, Dr. Matt Mills, is this done? Am I, are, are these lenses set for life now? I could be 95 with these same, I have artificial lenses in my, in my body now you in sure my do. head. I have artificial body parts, like having an artificial, you know, an artificial limb or an art something else. That's artificial. I have artificial parts to my body. Now, am I done with cataract surgery for the rest of my life? Uh, for all intents and purposes? Yes. There's a, mm,
0: a small membrane inside your eye which could become cloudy with scar tissue and then we take a laser and open that up but uh, as far as the expectation of a normal post-operative course you should be set we don't expect your eyes to change in terms of dimensions measurement curvature refraction and what i can tell you is that the lenses i put in your eyes are actually made of a design of material, we could put that in a one-year-old child and it should last their whole life if they live to 100. Wow. Now, um, the uh, the the flip side of that question is, do we ever have to replace the lenses? That is something that comes up very, very rarely. I would say that in my practice, it might be one in 2,500 to one in 3,000 that we end up having for various reasons that are unforeseen that we might need to go in there and take out that lens and put in another lens. Uh, so fortunately, it's something that can be done, but very rarely do we need to do it. Do I expect that to happen for you? Uh, no, I'd be shocked at this point if you ever had to have another
1: surgery like that. Okay, sticking along the, the theme of the surgery, what did you do? And here's what blows my mind is we talked about delicacy, delicate, being delicate um talk to me a little bit about the right mental attitude how it corresponds into your career as far as this is a high level of schooling you knew at an early age or when you got to college at Georgia Tech that you had a knack for calculus and biology physics stuff that I wasn't good at then you also have to have this burning desire to achieve. So, there's this competitiveness side of you. You're an athlete. You love athletics. You are a, a big time supporter now at your age now. You still support youth athletics, college athletics. You love professional athletics. You love being outdoors. You love being active. When it comes to the right mental attitude that applies to schooling, it applies to discipline and athletics, it applies to your livelihood, parenting, everything that goes into life has that word discipline in it, and it also has that word right mental attitude and preparation. The night before this surgery, I was going in at very early in the morning on my second eye. You see sometimes up to maybe 8, 10, I don't know how many patients a day what is the right mental attitude in your approach personally when you know that your fingers and these blades are going to be in somebody's eye? Like you could really mess up their life if you're not so careful, in my opinion. How do you, you, you prepare you for this? You are correct, sir.
0: Um, you know, you being a friend and um, a, a personal uh, a friend and, and, and a colleague that, you know, we've spent time together and, and and form this bond. Um, you know that does obviously sort of increase the emotional investment. But every single patient, it is not lost on me that every single patient that comes under my care and every single patient that we have the opportunity to uh, perform this procedure and this surgery for or any surgery. Um, yeah, they have, that individual has everything riding on this and I'll take it a step further. We have, we encounter patients every, every week in our practice that actually only have one eye, um, right. So there's no backup and there's no room for error. Um, so we take every precaution, uh, you know, the, the great thing about this field is, and and I'm kind of becoming a seasoned veteran, if you will, I'm, uh, you know getting up there in in years and that means i've done you know tens of thousands of these surgeries so you start to feel very very comfortable with it i've also made a point to incorporate the technologies into my practice that assist me and also improve the outcomes of the surgery so i have a lot of confidence just in my personal skill set as well as the uh, surgery center that we have developed and put together uh, so that I'm actually that morning when I roll in to do your surgery or the next day and the next person's, I'm actually eager and excited and it is a little bit challenging. Um, And that part's not lost on me, but it is something that's rewarding and gratifying. And so my mindset is um, I, 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 I enjoy the challenge, and I enjoy the successful completion of the surgery, and I really enjoy uh, hearing the stories of the outcomes of people that we've been able
1: to help. Okay, now, you said surgery again. I want to get into it. LASIK is laser, correct? Correct. And with, you already said that part of mine in the future I could get some cloudiness still and, and and go open that up with a laser. But and that would be a different type of laser. But these are lasers. So but this this surgery that we're talking about on me, this cataract surgery that you performed mm-hmm. last week, like I'm healed up and I'm rocking. We're gonna get into my vision in a minute. A couple of things I want you to be thinking about, Dr. Matt Mills, are Prescriptions. When I would give my prescription to Oakley, you had the pupil distance, you had all of these numbers on there. I want to talk about what that would look like today if I had to turn that in. Will I ever have to wear glasses again? I want to get into that. But the surgery, this surgery, has actual blades and incisions. Correct. Correct. Yeah, we use uh, diamond
0: knives. Believe it or not, we have we have two different uh, instruments which are essentially scalpels. We call the one a keratome because it cuts the cornea. And it's a 2.4 millimeter diamond keratome, so it's incredibly sharp and precise. And then we have another one that is one millimeter and we, u- we use that to make a little side port incision so that we have the ability to have multiple instruments inside the eye uh, simultaneously. And um, yes, and then probably the most important incision in cataract surgery is the incision into the capsule. So the capsule is a structure that envelops your crystalline lens, which is where the cataract lives, and uh, the lens itself becomes the cataract. So picture a magnifying lens that you use to burn a leaf on the sidewalk when you're a little kid. Well, there is one of those inside your eye and it's housed inside this capsular membrane. So we have to get that out of your eye, the cloudy cataract, while leaving intact as much of that capsule. As, as we can. And so that's where this very, very delicate procedure called the capsulorexis incision takes place. So we've made our two main incisions, and now we have our instruments inside your eye. And then uh, we basically make a tiny incision in this capsule, which is this membranous structure. And then we can either with a laser or by hand, we can uh, articulate this this uh, incision around in a circle. And it's very important that this thing be properly sized and properly centered because that determines the position of your lens inside your eye and that determines whether or not a given power of the lens is correct. So a great deal of thought, effort, training, and planning goes into making these incisions.
1: When When you're there... I want to th- make sure that I'm remembering and I'm. you're not under all the way but you're numbed up and you have you have an anesthesiologist that comes in you have your registered nurses there they come in and they take unbelievable care of you at Visionary. Um, you you get eye drops into your eyes that start to numb. I'm I'm going through what I remember. Mm -hmm. You get an IV, like I talked about, and they start to put some, some liquids in there, some serums in there. And then you go, you get wheeled back to the room and the anesthesiologist is there and he puts what happens once I'm back in the actual surgery center. I know that, I remember, I'm laying back And I I tried to explain it to my daughter. She's like, Well, what do they do, Daddy? And it's like, I said, It was almost like there was a pillow on me with a tunnel in it to where they felt like something soft was on my face to where I couldn't see the room anymore. At least I don't remember, but I had like this one tunnel of vision or like this light I was seeing up there. What was going on? What did that anesthesiologist do to me? And you're, you're, you're sitting over my head behind me, right? Operating from I, behind me? I actually me? was sitting temporally. So sort of on the side of the gurney on the side that we're operating on. So the, last week you're on this right side. See, I had no yeah, idea. Yeah. yeah. But, I, but it's my, the, my right my right side of my face is covered as my left side covered too. It is.
0: So what we do, uh, Chad, so first of all, we, the, the process is of course we do our informed consent and, uh, talk to you in in, uh, the pre-op area, get the IV started. Then we take you back in the OR. The anesthesiologist will give you a little bit of sedation, in your case, Versed. And Versed, you can think of like uh, liquid Valium. It's in the same family as as, uh, Valium. And so it's just a little bit of light sedation to kind of take the edge off and help you relax and not be nervous. And um, so then we prep around the eye with Betadine. And, um, and then to sort of isolate the sterile field and to keep uh, the surgical area as, as sterile as possible, we also put this adhesive sterile drape over your face. So that drape has a, an adhesive portion that goes around your eyelids and just a little bit beyond your, your, your brow and the bridge of your nose. And um, and then the rest of that is just a, a drape that we uh, use to to cover this, the operative area. So then we will make an incision in that drape. We put a little lid speculum in there to help you hold your eyelid open. We put numbing drops on the cornea. By this time you're relaxed. There's a light inside the microscope and we just ask you to look at that light. And some people just naturally zone out and look at the light, other people their eyes tend to wander, and we just remind them a few times during surgery. I also have some instruments that help me direct and steer the eye around, and um, a lot of times when people are, are in the process of getting ready for this surgery, they'll ask me, well, what if I blink? And my, you can't blink because of the lid speculum, and what if I move my head? Well, you can move your head, but we have a pillow that has an indentation that helps hold your head still. And we also put some tape across your forehead it's you know we don't use staples <laughs> like the old days now um, and but it's for a lot of my patients it's actually kind of a relaxing process um, and there's really um, uh, sort of a uh, uh, an anxiety that people have going in and that afterwards almost a hundred percent of people say to me, "Wow I was really nervous about that but I really didn't need to be
1: yeah, it's crazy. And, and and the amount of time, can it take longer or because of your expertise? And then you don't, I know that you don't brag on yourself, but is it normal for it to be that? Like, it seems like you're in and out in like nine, 10 minutes. How long does it take per eye? You know, there's
0: a, there's a, a little um, recorder, a little, um, a little clock on the heads up imaging device that I use, which is called Ingenuity, which is a 3D heads up imaging platform that runs through our microscope. So really usually start to finish is about 10 minutes and it can be 15 minutes if we're depending on the type of case and the degree of cataract and some scar tissue that we might encounter and that sort of thing. So we're usually 10 to 15 minutes and then you know in rare occasions somebody has a really really advanced cataract which sometimes we do see um it may take even you know 20 minutes
1: something like that so our goal was simply to see better i talked about i wanted you to think about prescriptions and vision and what these numbers mean like 2020 vision is what you hear that you want you hear stuff like hindsight's always 2020 like if you knew what you know i wish i didn't know now what i knew back all this stuff that you hear about hindsight or or what perfect vision is and 2020 i've heard numbers thrown around on mine correct me if i'm wrong dr matt mills 2045 so you think well that higher number i got perfect vision. no that means that I'm struggling more. I'm compensating more. Tell me the numbers and what, and where I was and where I am now, and then relate it to that eyeglass deal. Will I have to wear those anymore? Should I wear those anymore? Talk to me a little bit about those numbers and, 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 and prescriptions. Well,
0: okay, let's first start with uh, what do those numbers mean that we throw around. We're talking about a person's vision. We say 2020 vision. You can think of 2020 vision as um, I, what it actually describes is the size of the elements of the character on the projected screen across the way. Well, that's kind of complicated. Another way to think about it is that you see at 20 feet what the ideal patient sees at 20 feet. So that means you're right there where you should be. So now, when we say 2040, 2040, like you said to some people says, well, isn't 2040 better than 2020? No, 2040 is worse. What that means is that you have to be at 20 feet to see what the ideal patient can see at 40 feet. So now you're experiencing some significant degradation of your vision. And actually that is about what you were. I want to say that one of your eyes, was 2040 minus, and the other one might have been 2030 minus. Um, well, hold on. Is that as bad as it gets, 2040 minus? Oh, no. Fucking okay, the, the big E is, is 2400. 2400. Uh, the big E at the top of the chart, that's 2400. And then there are people who can't see the big E. So if you can no longer see the top line, which is 2400, then we go into – well can you see my fingers and if so how far away can you count my fingers so we may record okay count fingers at two feet so think about that somebody has to have their fingers two feet away from you for you to even see them some people can't do that and then we say well can you see my hand moving that's called hand motion some people can't see that and then we say well can you see the light is the light on or off and we call that light perception and then you know so so and, and even cataracts can get to light perception. We don't want them to. Um, and the more advanced they get, the more difficult the surgery and, the, and the, the greater the difficulty of surgery, but also the greater the risk of a complication. So, man, we would like to catch all of them before they even hit, you know, 2080. In your case, it was about a 2040 minus in your bad eye and about a 2030 minus in your better eye. But then with glare, your vision was dropping down back into the 2080 2100 range
1: with glare 2100 so my I was one as you're sitting there talking about the fingers and the hand motion and the light perception all that was I over dramatic about what i thought my vision was and it wasn't that bad oh no you were definitely
0: experiencing um you know impairment of what we call activities of daily living and Basically, can you do your job? Can you do the things you want to do? Can you do the things you need to do? And uh, so, no, you were not uh, being overly dramatic. You were experiencing the
1: impact and the impairment of cataracts. So now back to that piece of paper that I would get from your office in our early days of our friendship and me being a patient. Before surgery was even talked about, I had a prescription for glasses. I'd get it, and I talked about the pupil distance and all of the numbers that were on that paper for left eye, right eye. Um, when I would put those glasses on, it magnified everything. It made my vision twenty twenty. Is that what we were getting out with those lenses? And now, with with this, my eyes the way they are now after my cataract surgery and these lenses, this vividy, vivid, vivid, uh, vividity, vividity lenses that you've put in. Am I, my question is simply this, are my eyes right now without having these glasses on, which are that prescription, are they what this prescription would have been?
0: Yes, that they are, except that, except that I think they're, they're actually better now because prior to that, yes, we had corrected the farsightedness in a little bit of cylinder or astigmatism, but the light was still being transmitted through an opaque lens. So now your visual acuity is better than it was
1: before with the glasses. Does that make sense? Yes. A lot of sense. And um, here's how I would relate it. When you put on my glasses and you didn't have my prescription, people would look at me like, oh my God, like this is really your glasses. Like they're like, they would take them off. You know, you've seen that done a million times as, mm-hmm. an, opto- as an ophthalmologist where people put on some prescription glasses that aren't meant for them. And they're like, Whoa, right. I know right away what I've not, I have not done this with my prescription Oakley's or these Oakley reading glasses. What would happen now? Would I get that same effect through this? Or would it be almost just like looking through a pair of lenses that weren't, That have no prescription in them
0: now? No. If you were to look through your previous prescription, you would be that person who immediately takes them off and says, wow, these are not right. Uh, Basically, you would, um, because you were farsighted and there's a a plus power in those lenses, you might see things up close very well, but everything at a distance would be extremely blurry.
1: Uh, So now I want to relate it to what, i love to do and what you love to do is be outdoors and see the the vision is everything and i can't imagine not seeing ducks do what they do and the majesty of a bass shaking on my line all of that stuff okay now i don't want to be like over over dramatize it to where i wasn't seeing fish or i couldn't see the ducks flying but when you're in the gun and you're taking that responsibility of pointing a gun and taking an animal's life it's very close to my like i'm i take it very serious like i want to i want to do it the right way um and there's also the huge part of safety okay when you're hunting you owe it to the people you're hunting with you owe it to the animal you owe it to your dog Eh, to be the best you can be at this this has given me like the confidence of man this is going to be the best duck season of my life i want to talk a little bit dr matt mills about what are some of the things and to the audience to know that I'm going to see and, and realize or be like, whoa, I, I'm, I'm a, I actually am seeing this better. You talked about dawn. You talk about dusk. You talk about low light. You talk about low ceilings. We see it all as waterfowl hunters. I like blue skies and sunshine. But there's those stormy days, low ceiling, high ceiling, gray, darker, black clouds. Um as a whole, what are these lenses? And you've touched on it a little bit, but when I'm out in Wisconsin next week and that sunrise is coming up and those ducks are coming off the roost and the Canada geese, I know my hearing, that's probably going to be my next thing, Dr. Mountain Mills, is <laughs> I might need a little help there, right? Yeah, With all I'm going to have to work on that. <laughs> you might have to have a, a, what they call a referral, but what am I going to see right away? What am I going to notice? You are right going to
0: notice some tremendous improvements in a couple of areas. One is, first of all, is color perception. Um, As a person's cataracts develop, they take on a green and brown and gray cast to the lens. And so that ultimately imposes almost like a sepia filter on everything that you are looking at. Now, because it happens gradually and because it happens simultaneously in both eyes, people don't realize it until one of them is corrected. But your ability to perceive color is going to be improved immediately. Obviously, in the past, you either were a little bit blurry or you had on some prescription glasses. Now, I know from our discussions that your post-op appointment, one eye was 2015, the other eye 2020, and uh, so that the audience knows, 2015 means that you see at 20 feet what the ideal patient has to be moved up to 15 feet. So you are actually seeing a little bit better than so-called perfect vision. So you're not gonna need uh, any corrective lenses to see your environment, and you're gonna have better uh, color perception. You will also have improved contrast sensitivity. So you talked about being out on a gray morning with a low ceiling and maybe some fog or mist, um, and being able to perceive outlines in that setting. Um, falls under the category of contrast sensitivity, and that is something else that will be greatly enhanced by having these improved clear lenses in your eye as opposed to the cataracts. I
1: do a lot of night driving on the road. I fly a lot more now, which that's fine, but night driving we've talked about halos after my first eye, this is what was crazy to me um, we are going to get back we are going to get back to um as far as my vision in the field but the the night driving is very important to me because i want to be able to see and i started to see a really bad if i didn't have my glasses on i wasn't i wasn't like not confident but i wasn't as like where i wanted to be um especially when it's raining and now i got the raindrops and the windshield wipers and the headlights coming at me all of that stuff plays a role in me where i'm responsible for everybody in my truck i got a trailer i'm pulling i got a truck behind me pulling another trailer i got big time you know a a lot of a lot of investment in all of this Um, so you want to be as safe as you can after the left eye a month ago I was sitting in my hot tub and I was like man the halos were terrible like my shop lights were on and it was like there was a triple ring around each one staring back at me like a UFO or like I was getting yep. interrogated or something but then after my right eye got done i barely had i like if if any at all i had barely any halo at all by that time all of it was gone in my left eye that only lasted for maybe 24 48 hours but then when my right eye got done it seemed like everything just balanced out really quick what was going on there
0: yeah you you've touched on two things uh the first thing is your Left eye cataract, which we did first, had a more advanced cataract. We have a more advanced cataract. It requires a little bit more energy uh, being used to break up that cataract. That's ultrasound energy that we use. um, After we make the incisions that we spoke about, the next step is to actually extract the cataract. And we do that using phacoemulsification, which is is the term we use for this little microscopic handheld ultrasound that breaks it up and, and extracts it. So Your left eye being a more advanced cataract uh, required a higher energy level, and that would result in just a little bit of edema or swelling of the cornea, and that would be what would cause those halos that you were seeing initially in that eye. Your cornea has uh, a, a structure on the undersurface of the cornea, which is called the endothelium, and the endothelium has a function in life, and that function is to pump fluid out of your cornea. And so as the time goes on following your surgery, if you have edema, that corneal endothelium begins to work and in short order uh, will, will pump that fluid out of your cornea and that'll clear up those halos. So then with your second eye, you did touch on another phenomenon that we do see with any type of lens, but especially with... The multifocal lenses, and as in your case, the extended depth of focus lenses, and that is our brain is wired to integrate the images between the two eyes. Uh, the, The neural pathways that extend back from your optic nerves, they actually cross in the center of your brain in an area called the chiasm. And they don't all cross, but 50% of the fibers from each eye cross, and then proceed back to the occipital cortex where the vision is processed. And therefore, your brain is much happier when you're getting a similar signal from each eye or getting a similar image. So a lot of times we advise our multifocal or extended depth of focus patients not to evaluate their vision too critically Uh, when their first eye is done and then to give it a chance to have that second eye done. And then immediately your brain has this neuro adaptation and this plasticity to be able to put it together. And that's when the light bulb really comes on for our patients. That's
1: the aha moment or the wow moment for most of our patients. I experienced it big time. I was like, Almost to where my brain was telling me, man, this eye is, wants to close a little bit. Uh, this eye, the left corner of it, I'm talking about my original surgery on the first eye of the left. My point in that, saying that is to ask you this, Dr. Matt Mills, what's the optimum that you want a patient? I, my travel schedule sucks. I waited 30 days. Is that too long? Because as soon as I got this right eye done, it was like, boom, it balanced out. My brain's like, oh, like took a sigh of relief almost. Like, man, things are fine. I wasn't worried that something was wrong with the left eye. I just was like, man, something was not, like, it it kept telling me, like, man, my my left corner, my outer corner, my left eye of the original surgery was telling me, hey, it's shutting on me. It's kind of trying to close. When it wasn't, I'd look in the mirror and I'd be like, I feel like my eyes are squinting, but they were wide open. There was this weird sensation. But after my second surgery on the right eye last week. I'm done. So what, sh- how long should a patient wait in between these eyes? Wait a minute. It, let me, fo- wait, hold on. Do. do you always, if you have cataracts in one eye, is it going in the right? Do you always do both eyes? In we don't surgery? always
0: do both eyes. You know, that is case by case. I had a patient in front of me this week and that person's like 2080 best corrected in one eye and the other eye still corrects to 2025. 20, and we had a discussion and we decided we would just correct the one. So, You know, ultimately it will happen, but it can be very asymmetric and it can happen more rapidly in one eye than the other. Um, But in your case, the question that you brought up is what is the sort of optimal timing between the first eye and the second eye? In our practice, we're actually pretty conservative about our entire approach to this thing. You know, we have sort of a safety first mentality. And so we typically do our patient's cataracts two weeks apart. And so we will do the first eye, we'll do a one day post-op. We do like to be able to look at them for that one week post-op and, and then finalize our plan for the second eye. We do actually get to learn a little bit about the response of the first eye and planning the second eye. And so we're very, very meticulous in our calculations, in our lens selection, in the measurements, in the biometry. Uh, that goes into selecting the proper lens power, as well as the technology that we have in the OR to uh, facilitate that. But we learn a little bit from the response of that first eye, and then we factor that in. So for us, it is usually a two week window. Like in your case, we had to extend that a little bit due to your travel schedule. And then I have other people in which we compress that. There are people that we will do one week apart Um, There are a few practices in the country that will actually do sort of, you know, bilateral simultaneous. And, uh, you know, uh, um, that is something that may become the norm over time. I'm I'm not inherently opposed to that. Um, For example, LASIK. I've been doing LASIK now for 22 years. And when we first started doing LASIK, there was a mindset that We should do, rather than do bilateral simultaneous, we should do sequential surgery. We should do one eye first, make sure that eye heals up fine, then do the other. Well, as time went by, just the incredible success rate and the incredibly infrequent complication rate, as well as sort of the logistics involved, it became almost universal that everybody gets bilateral simultaneous LASIK. And as our track record, success rate, complication rate, everything continues to improve. Uh, We we may find ourselves before very long doing bilateral simultaneous, but in our practice, we still feel that we gain a little bit from having that, uh, a a little bit of
1: healing time for the first eye before we do the second. We all wanna be the bionic man growing up. My eyes feel like I'm, you know, bionic now. I got my vision back. Do you hear that little sound when you're looking at things closely? Yeah. What does that mean to me, though, as far as maintenance goes now? Do I still get to use eye drops when I need them? If If I get something in my eye, can I go in there and do just normal things that you would do with your regular eye? And talk about in relating back to what you love to do and what I do for a living, how important is eyewear, not prescription eyewear, but protection of these eyes is it more so now because i do have artificial lenses i don't want to make it sound like it's never important right this is something that we take for granted a lot and you would be amazed as many hunts as i go on of people that don't wear glasses when they hunt how important is that and what's my maintenance from here on out until you know until i'm no longer able to walk on earth what is what is what is the maintenance program so uh the maintenance program right now is
0: even though the lenses that I put in your eyes do have some UV filtering, we still would recommend you and all of our patients wear UV blocking sunglasses whenever they're outside. Now, you know, obviously there's gonna be times depending on the lighting and the weather and things like that, where that's not conducive and doesn't make sense. But to the extent possible, we would recommend UV protecting sunglasses. Also in a hunting environment, Obviously safety is is paramount. and so some form of eye protection is advisable just in the you know um, unlikely scenario in which there's some m- m- uh, misfire or some problem with the discharge of the gun and that sort of thing or um, a, you know a sh- a unexpected shot from a friend or a, a hunter that may be across the field and you don't even know that they're there and they may not know you're there. So wearing polycarbonate, UV blocking lenses, whether they're clear or uh, tinted for sun protection is advisable at all times. And as much as possible, you know, I, one of the things I pursue is chucker hunting and chucker hunting involves quite a bit of exertion as you are hiking up the hill. And even if it's 38 degrees outside, you're going to sweat and then the sweat gets on the glasses and then that requires you to stop and clean them, and and so it sometimes is a little bit of a struggle to force yourself to do that, but it does make a lot of sense in the nature of the sports that we're involved in
1: gunpowder coming out of the action um, you're pulling the trigger and the action is sliding open it's it's grabbing onto that hole and it's throwing it out and ejecting it it's grabbing another one out of the magazine and putting it in there there's all this stuff flying out of the gun then you got to mess with you're moving around in your ground blind and you got dust flying in you are walking in corn stubble and uh, the wind comes up and blows a piece of corn stuff all of this stuff happens every day i tell everybody my blind bag i always carry saline or some kind of eye drops how important is what i just said to you and what would you tell the listener your patient the duck hunter the the deer hunter is there a is and i'm i I don't i understand pharmaceuticals and i understand you know promotion and i understand i'm not saying that you are trying to sell eye drops but Mm -hmm. is there one that you would recommend that's over the counter for somebody like me to go and get and always have in my blind bag you
0: know that's a great question um it it, it's certainly a good idea to keep some eye drops some lubricating eye drops around if you were to go into costco or sam's club or even walgreens or cvs you will see about 50 different brands we like refresh there's a particular one that uh, is called uh, refresh relieva has a little bit of a lipid stabilizer in it but in all honesty any of those saline tear replacement drops would be fine for what we're talking about. And just going back to your earlier question on the maintenance program with your eyes right now, the incisions that we make in your eye are designed to be self-sealing. And we feel like within about 30 days of your surgery, your cornea has pretty much the normal structural integrity that it did preoperatively. So at that point, we say you're released to your own recognizance for things like mountain biking or, you know, snowboarding or skiing or things that have a, a, a somewhat of a risk of impact, obviously with eye protection and common sense. But um, so when you get something in your eye and you need to put drops in there and perhaps you need to try to, you know, rub your eye a little bit to get the dust out and that sort of thing, you are going to be fine to do that as of pretty much right now. Wow. Um, And and as far as other maintenance things going forward, um, you know, if a person has a family history of macular degeneration, then it becomes even more important to protect from the UV. Um, And then also probably a good idea to take some vitamins, which pertain to that. And if you don't have any negative family history in terms of the eyes, just a routine eye check probably once a year, just to make sure that, nothing is changing. And uh, in your case, we don't expect things to change, but we don't know unless we're looking. So once we're complete your post-operative care, we'll probably just ask you to come in once a year, uh, take a look at your retina, take a look at those lens implants, patch
1: on the back and tell you how well you can see. The last question I have for you or last thought, and I want you to allude to this, and I know that your ego is in check because you're one of the most humble people I know with the talent of what you perform. Like this surgery to me blows my mind. Like and I've and I talked to your post op doctor, I've talked to a lot of the people in your office about I think that's the overall consensus to people. Is like, what? What? Like what? Are you serious? Like you can do that so easy with such precision. It's amazing to me, okay? So kudos to you. But how does one go about finding a dr matt mills okay i know that you i'm very lucky that you're 20 miles south of me it's a long ways out here like it's crazy (laughs) to me how long it is but it's a nice um, area though it's beautiful um there was a deer out here and two coyotes last night it was crazy with sundown um the uh the the ability to find this is it easy be honest with me dr matt mills to end this conversation I don't think you're being arrogant at all by saying it's not easy. I don't know if it is, but to me, is this, you've already made mention in this conversation I picked up on it. There's a shortage of doctors. Does that mean that it's hard to find a Dr. Matt Mills? Are there there a ton of ophthalmologists with this hand-eye coordination and precision that can perform these surgeries so flawlessly? Well, Chad, thank you for those comments and,
0: and, you know, for taking note of, of what we do and the detailed way in which we do it. Um, You bring up some interesting points, and this kind of goes back to sort of the supply and demand for doctors of all stripes, but particularly, in this case, ophthalmologists. The population, as you know, is aging very rapidly in the U.S. and worldwide. But with the baby boomer generation now getting into their 60s and, and sort of the, the the peak of that bell curve aging. I wanna say there are 10,000 people turning 65 in America every single day. We already established that every single person eventually will need cataract surgery, assuming they, they live to an age at which cataracts have the ability to develop. And there are approximately 9,000 ophthalmologists in the US that perform cataract surgery routinely. How many? Nine thousand. But so that's not
1: even one for every city in Nevada.
0: I know. There's there's uh I'm just going off the statistics that I read. There's forty five
1: million people in the state of California.
0: There's eighteen thousand ophthalmologists in the US and there are nine thousand that perform cataract surgery routinely. So where I'm going with that (sighs) is Wow. If it seems like we are to a degree and I don't mean this in a bad way or and we, we and we take every case as serious as the next, but if it seems like we're industrializing this process to become efficient, but not efficient just for efficiency's sake, efficient for the pursuit of perfection. Um there's a reason for that and that is that in order for the supply of doctors to keep up with the demand of people who need this surgery, we have to be very efficient and increasingly efficient. And we've designed our processes and facilities and the equipment that we've acquired at Visionary Surgery Center to be efficient and to also pursue perfection in that and to be meticulous in every step of this process. with the ultimate goal of trying to achieve a result like we have for you for every patient. So it's an incredibly challenging but also incredibly gratifying and rewarding on a personal level uh, process to be involved in.
1: Well, all I can relate, uh, not related to, but all I can... um allude that to is that it's a very intimidating career in my opinion I don't think it's easy I think that you make it look easy with style and grace and everything that you do but here's the deal (laughs) by what happened to my eyes and what I the the little diamond blades that you're talking about or the lasers or whatever you're performing it's not easy and that is all I could That if I was going to go write a thesis paper I don't even know if I'm educated enough to write a thesis paper but I'm a pretty good creative writer if I was going to go write an article for a magazine right now about optical I would say that the number one reason why there's only 900 performing cataracts, 9,000 performing cataracts consistently is that it's hard and it's difficult and it's intimidating. If I'm going into medical school and I have somebody saying, "Okay, you're going to sit to the right side of this man or woman's head and you're going to shove this blade into their eye and you're going to have to be so (laughs) precise like that's going to be like, "Okay, I'm out. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to take my chance on a knee. I'm going to take my chance Uh on a rotator cuff. I'm not going to go into there with this little micro blade made out of diamond and take a chance. That's all you can allude to, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, you know, I I don't know if there's anything else. I I will tell you that as you know, as, as far along as I am in my career, I still very vividly remember the very first cataract surgery I performed in residency. And um, it, it is a very uh, daunting undertaking the first time you make that incision and you look under that microscope and you realize that it is your hands driving those instruments around inside somebody's eye. I have to ask this. Did you How many did you have to perform on a cadaver? Because that would be freaky to me if you're there. You actually don't perform this on a cadaver. There are some wet labs that the companies will set up and... You can perform this, believe it or not, uh, they will harvest pig eyes. And it's not completely analogous and similar to the human in that the structures inside those pig eyes are much more sturdy and robust. So it gives you sort of a false latitude that you can get away with things inside the pig eye that you can't in a human eye. But just to get you familiar with stepping on the foot pedal to articulate the level of phaco emulsification and pair that with the level of aspiration. And just to kind of familiarize yourself with the maneuvers that you will have to make, they do set up wet labs that involve pig eyes. And um, so, but you don't do a ton of those, um, you know, five or six. And the next thing you know, you're sitting with your attending and they're like, okay, you've seen this.
1: Make the incisions and let's go. Vision is so important. Life is precious. This is how I'm going to end this, is how I looked at it. There's a cost to everything in life. There's a cost of living. If you're a vegan, there's animals dying to make sure you get your vegetables. I want everybody to understand where I'm coming from, that everything in life comes with a cost. I don't want people to think that I am trying to sell this surgery because it worked for me there's other options out there we've talked about lasik contacts glasses all i'm telling you is that as human beings we invest in a lot of things that we don't even consider them or classify them as an investment we just look at it as everyday life we take things for granted in the other end of the spectrum that are so easy to take for granted our hearing oh we're going to wake up and be able to see tomorrow we're going to be able to wake up and walk tomorrow. We're going to be able to put our our boots on this side of the earth. It's a mindset that you have to start thinking about. How much do you really spend on what you love to do in life? It's no problem for us to buy a duck boat at 20 grand or a truck at some of these trucks are $80,000, 90,000 now. Our dogs have tens of thousands of dollars of training in them. A bag of dog food that we feed, the best dog food in the world, in my opinion, yukonuba is $57 for 40 pounds. Is that really even a question that we're not going to give our dogs the best nutritional value that they can get? And what I'm trying to say is maybe this is an intimidating price tag for you. If you look at it, there's financing available. There's creative ways to take care of something that is going to allow you to have a value of life that I can't even I can't even describe it in words like how important vision is. And you don't have to be a hunter, a duck hunter to know this. I don't care if you love watching sports, I don't care if you love doing math problems, if you're a teacher, if you're a tutor, if you're a computer engineer. There's so many so many walks of life out there and that's what this podcast and what our family of brands is all about is that hunting has that been that common denominator Dr. Matt Mills that has brought me together with a Freaking badass ophthalmologists and dentists and soldiers and musicians and athletes. How important are, is vision to you? Ask yourself that. And you can wear glasses. You can do other means to do it. But like Dr. Matt Meals alluded to, everybody in their lifetime is going to have cataracts. And this surgery is unbelievable what it's done to me. And I would tell anybody, think about it investigate it do your homework can dr matt mills end it by saying this if i live in arkansas in the duck capital of the world in the grand prairie can i fly to reno and have surgery by you absolutely i have had patients come from
0: as far away as alaska and texas um, for lasik um, which we also do at at, at a high level and and are happy to do for those patients that are, are the proper candidates but absolutely, that there are opportunities that, and we could, you know, facilitate that process for anybody who's interested, and um, and just for people that may not want to travel, a good place to start in searching for an ophthalmologist is to find somebody that is board certified. There's bodies that oversee doctors and organizations of doctors, and the American Board of Ophthalmology certifies. Uh, doctors that meet the criteria and pass the tests and maintain the certification and uh, continue to um, have a, their to perform their continuing education and so if somebody wants to come and see us we would be more than happy to take care of them and I think they would see that our our facilities both in the clinic and in the surgery center are par excellence and um, we get that feedback from from reps that cover the region of the Western United States and even the entire United States. And, and they come and look at our operation and they look at our facilities. They look at our surgery center and tell us that it's one of, if not the finest setup that they have been through. Um, But also if somebody just wants to find somebody locally, there's, there's resources out there.
1: Hit us up. DM us info at the or info at this life ain't for If you want to know anything else about this surgery, we can put you in touch with visionary. I professionals of Northern uh, Nevada, I care professionals, Eye care professionals is Dr. Matt Mills. That is his practice. You can go there and the state of the art machinery of, and the tests they run you through. I actually look forward to it. Like I, I, I almost like when I was in there the other day, yesterday, or the day before for my one week post-op, it was the day before yesterday. Um, I'm almost like I'm, I'm going into there like it's a little huddle, like I'm coming out of the locker room, like, hey, I'm going to go in here and kick, kick ass today. I'm going to see. And then I get in there and I'm like, heck, yes. Like, and I'm want, like, what does that mean? What am I at 2015? Am I at 2020? But, yeah, message us. And just think about your vision. Think about long term. You can't take it for granted. Protect it. We are putting our eyes in harm's way every day if we're not taking care of them multivitamins you can take those there's things that you can do for your health all over i'm not saying that other parts of our body aren't important but without vision and i don't mean this in a mean way i don't know if life is worth living i'm not saying i'm not taking any quality of life away because i understand that there's things that people go through every life is important but my vision is so important to me i don't know if i would want to go through life without being able to see the smile on my daughter's face I don't, and I'm not saying that take me out of this life if I can't see. I'm simply saying that without vision, I don't know if I would want to. Knowing that I did it, was able to do it for some time in my life. If it got taken away from me, that would be so. You know, Chad, it, it would it would just destroy um, me. It's really
0: nice to hear your enthusiasm and your appreciation and your your thankfulness for this this God given. Ability to see that you have, and now we've been able to help restore it. And the excitement in your experience just comes through. Um, polls are taken and studies are done, and 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 patients are asked exactly that question. You know, we have five senses, and people say, "Well, what would be the sense that you would least like to lose or most like to keep?" And across the board, people value their vision.
1: Uh, just like you just described. I just don't know if I could do it. And I'm not saying that I I love hearing Canada geese honk and mallard ducks quack. And (laughs) I love tasting good sushi and good elk backstrap and good mallard duck and good wild. I love it all. I love to feel there's certain things that, I mean, I, I could get away without feeling some things I think, but if you think about feeling and the different feel, like I could touch this table or what, touches me emotionally or in my psyche and what makes me think vision controls all of that in my opinion not saying that hearing doesn't and i could do a blind taste test of coca-cola versus pepsi and be like oh whatever my taste sense is there but without A doubt Dr. Matt Mills vision is what makes me look at that fighter jet right there and Brian stand in front of there a guy that's done 130 missions as a jet pilot and seeing him it just makes all those senses go nuts it touches my heart Mm -hmm. it makes my brain think it makes me be like thank God for our military vision allows me to do that if I heard a fighter jet I might get all those senses but without seeing it and seeing him and knowing who he is and being able to put a face with that name of Brian and that he does these missions and saves people and the stories that he's told on this podcast I don't know if i'd get the same effect in life without my vision of being able to see him sit across the table Uh, visions everything and to know that mine's perfect now i don't think life can get any better you can get that through glasses and contacts like we've talked about and lasik if you qualify for it. just get out there and investigate it because life is so much more special and precious when you can see everything chad belding dr matt mills thank you so much thank you chad it's always a pleasure Yes, sir. The Foul Life Podcast. I want to go out with a song about vision today, and I've been thinking about them. I mean, Double Vision's a big-time <laughs> popular one. Uh, yeah, that's probably not appropriate. Uh, it's probably uh, not appropriate to what this is. I was uh, like, I don't si- think Dr. Matt appreciate Sun that.
0: Silver Pickups have a song called Lazy
1: Eye. Which one? <laughs> Who? It's called Lazy
0: Eye. Uh, Silver Sun Pickups. Silver kind of an al- alternative
1: uh, band. S- Silver Sun Pickups. Lazy Eye. We're going to go out with we can do better that. than that. I we- didn't know...
0: Uh, actually how about uh, Jimmy Cliff I can see clearly now
1: there you go Jake take us out Jimmy Cliff I can see clearly now Chad Belling, Dr. Matt Mills the Fowl Life Podcast thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Meat Meat Your Maker made with meat for making us be better butchers better processors better procurers of this lifestyle serving that wild game bounty to our friends and family take passion in it take pride in it love you all thank you for listening talk to you soon